Welcome, Pudding People, to another episode of Everybody Loves Pudding. I'm your host, Ken Seymour. Today, I have with me actor uh, extraordinaire. I'm going to call him actor extraordinaire, Robert Prescott. You may remember him from a number of fantastic 1980s movies, but he's still been doing some really cool stuff recently that I also kind of, uh, I'm excited to, to ask about. Uh, thank you so much for coming on with us today. Well, I'm flattered. Thanks very much. This is a nice introduction. <laughs> well, unexpected. We 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 love we love to uh, talk to anybody that helps to create the stories that uh, can affect so many people, and you're part of that tradition. And we are ecstatic to have you with us. So, all right, I always like to start kind of at at the beginning whenever I can. Uh, chronological is definitely easier, especially with something like this. So, what I wanted to start with is. One of the things that I didn't realize in, until I started digging a little bit uh, for the interview is that uh, it, it, I saw that your mom was a doctor of speech and audiology. Is that accurate? That's right. And she's from the Midwest, too. Yeah. Not Indiana, but uh, uh, Ohio, oh. as is my father. We're, we're Midwesterners. We got we But got yeah, it. she was a, she had. She's a very smart woman. She's still with us. She's 90, 93. And, uh, yeah, she, she was a speech and audiology. She did a lot of work with baby cries and, uh, and working with a, a system called cued speech, which is, uh, an alternative to the uh, American sign language. She thought that was going to catch on in a big way, but, uh, so she's, she's a very, uh, committed to her. That is that's that's pretty cool. God, I saw that I had no clue when I when I looked at it. It's like you know that's really kind of trying to make a big impact. Um, right. So the thing that that also struck me about that when when I kind of looked at that and I saw that your undergraduate degree was in English, and then you went into training right. for the theater. It made me wonder right. if maybe her focus on language kind of rubbed off onto you and that maybe kicked you off into the direction uh, that you went because it's all about communication in English and in theater, right? That's a good point. I mean, it, it is about communicating. Um, I think, well, she took an interest in my communication because uh, of all the various speech defects that I had growing up that were taken care of in the public school system in Michigan. I couldn't pronounce my R's. And uh, so my name was Wabit Prescott. And uh, my brother, Jake, who was a little bit older than me, there were four kids in the family. He was always credited with um, teaching me how to speak as the, you know, the next one in line taught the youngest one in line. And he had a, uh, he couldn't pronounce his S's. And he sort of he was Jake Prescott. So the story goes, I was a typical like second grader or whatever, just wanted to go out at recess and run around. And one day I learned that I'd have to be taken out of the classroom once or twice a week, sit in a chair in the hallway and have speech lessons, which to me was just like unnecessary, humiliating. I didn't care that I had a speech defect. I'm happy. My friends understand what I'm saying. So that day, I came home from school and I said, Jakey, you taught me how to talk and you taught me Wong. <laughs> That's the story. So, I mean, speech, we seem to have gotten over our speech impediments and so on. But I think my mother was more about the tech. She was very technical. She was a, more scientific about it. And so I think the communication that, that goes on in the you know in theater and storytelling is is uh, not quite as, you know, technical. Mm. That, that definitely, that, that tracks, that makes sense to me. I, uh, my d undergraduate degree is also in English. So it always uh, strikes a chord when I see another oh, individual that, that kind of took that path and, and, and where, yeah. where it diverged and you went into acting and I wasted my degree. So, you know, <laughs> it's just, uh, <laughs> I don't know if mine applied to acting really. I mean, there's the, you, you can argue that it did indirectly, but I think I feel I was pretty fortunate because where I went to school, we, there was no theater undergrad, 
And I'm not sure I would have taken it anyway at that point in my life. But I, early on, I was entertaining the idea of being an actor. So. so speaking specifically of training to be the actor that you became, you were involved with a couple of different actor studios, uh, Bill Esper right. and Joanne Barron Studios. Yeah. Uh, yeah. that ha- Both of those studios have a fairly impressive pedigree of, of individuals that have gone through and gone on into acting. What, what, oh, yeah. what is it like for those of us that didn't get the opportunity to train specifically for, for acting? I mean, I had some, you know, theater experience in college. It's not the same thing. What, what is it no, like? What is it like to go through that kind of training process? It's, it's very, it was, it was crucial for me to tell you the truth. I think, I think my, you know, one of the strengths I have as an actor is realizing that I need help. You know, I, I, I wasn't just going to like step off a curb, curb and be a, know what I was doing on stage or in front of the camera or any of that. So I sense, I always, I had a sense of what good acting should be or could be, but how to get there was a mystery. And so I decided to move to New York and I, and uh, I got an apartment, I got a job, I set up my life that summer. And then in the fall, I, I was at, I asked around, uh, just trying to find the, the most recommended the best recommended teacher. And at that time was Bill Esper, the Bill Esper studio who came out of the neighborhood playhouse, Sandy Meisner. And that's the pedigree there. And Joanne Barron was an associate of his. And so I continued with her. It's all the same Meisner technique. And to answer your question, oh man, it was, it was really difficult at first for me because it's throwing out all that, uh, the, that analytic, part of your mind that that's groomed and, and trained in, uh, in an undergraduate, you know, liberal arts college, you know, where everything has to be, you know, explained and substantiated and all that stuff. So it, it, it took me a while, but once I sort of got the idea of what was happening, I was all in and I was so grateful that I had this teacher, Joanne Barron, who was just a dynamo. She was just, and I look back at it, it's crazy because she was about, we were about the same age. We were just in our mid-20s. And she was this uh, wonderkin teacher that, that uh, Meisner and Esper had spotted and they, you know, really trained her. And she was just, she was one of those like great teachers, like a great coach where she said, I remember, you know, all you got to do is if you match my intensity, my commitment, that's all you got to do, match it. And after about two or three months of really struggling with the work, it's very improvisational and getting outside of your head and not and trying to, you know, get get all your attention off yourself is the thrust of the work. And when that finally started happen happening, then I was all in. And for and and for quite a few years, she, you know, spoke highly of me as one of her students really committed you know not necessarily the the greatest talent but somebody who just threw all in so well and often talent is kind of um well to a certain extent a subjective term because it's it's all about about who the the viewer connects with and that that can have so many different factors that that compound and influence that decision um, it's so true. And I, I, so true, yeah. I love but it. It seems also that there are some talents that are almost transcendental, but not, true. not too many, I think. Yeah. For the most part, everyone's dealing with strengths and some limitations. And, you know, they work it, you know, they're working it. Definitely. And I think I fall into that category. Well, and that's, and, um, uh, well, has it been two years already? A couple of years ago, we talked to Stephen Tobolowski, who's one of kind of our favorite. Oh, yeah, I know Stephen. I met him years. And I, I worked with his uh, uh, his his wife Anne Hearn. Oh, she, we were in a theater company together for a while. Nice, that's awesome. But the the thing it's right when he was starting, out, he was hitting it. Yeah, yeah. but but that, it's that kind of thing. It's he he didn't have those those lead roles, but right it it. 
his being in whatever project just made it better because he was there. And it's, it's that, that kind of thing that I really enjoy seeing, just those components come through where you bring yourself into it and just make it better, even if a lot of people won't necessarily see it immediately. I know I feel the same way. I think I always felt that way in watching movies that, that there'd be a, a supporting character, small character. And I think, oh my God, how did, how did they get that? Mo- how did he, that was just awesome. You know, is this guy for real? You know, how did they find <laughs> this guy? That kind of thing. So, all right. So you started in theater, theater, and then of course you have uh, quite a, quite a resume of television shows and films that you've been involved with. And they're, right. they have a great overlap in, in, in how you approach, but the way that the way that it ends up being put together is different. And I'm sure the feel has to be different. What I wanted to really know is since you've had experience with both, I kind of asked this to everybody that has done both theater and, and film, what is it about each of them that kind of, that lights you up that you like better uh, about each one and what is maybe something that's a little more difficult for you? Um, you know, to tell you the truth, I don't think I have any uh, special light to shed on that. I, you know, you hear the, most actors say that the, the, you know, live theater requires, you know, just uh, gives you back a lot when you're in front of an audience and, and the whole, you know, taking a role from start to finish in a two-hour play or whatever is very gratifying. And, and the, you know, film and television is all fragmented. So, and I think that's a challenge, the fragmentation, you know, identifying what the moment is and knowing the context of everything and then doing it out of sequence. And that takes a certain kind of, you know, analytic ability. But, you know, being on a set, a good set, is a lot of fun, you know, the right people. And it's, yeah, I don't, I, you know, it's a, it's a coin flip. It all depends on the project and the people you're working with. That makes sense. Some of the set, I mean, set design's always been important and the implementation of the, uh, the surroundings have always been kind of key and sometimes feels like it's overlooked because I mean, because it's, it's the backdrop, but does it help you when, when the, when that kind of set is, it makes you feel like you're there. Does it help you kind of escape? Like you're talking about get out of your own head and kind of become who it is that you're trying to be. Um, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. But, um, you know, there's also behind on the other side of the set, there's all this, like in a film, there's all this, all these people and equipment and stuff. It's, you know, the fourth wall is just this beehive of activity. And uh, that can be disorienting. I've had some friends who are actors who um, I had a, a friend who's really good here. He said he gave a lot of great performances, but he could never get past. He always said that when they put the, the clapper and uh, say you know, scene, um, take five, that that always just rattled him and would take him a moment or two to like figure out where he was again. And, and uh, so some people, some people take to it better than others. You know, the, the business of acting in front of a camera and in front of a crew. It's, it's an, it's a knack. It's an art. It's a little bit of everything, you know? So, okay. So now um, the other thing that kind of, um, kind of popped out to me you've worked with a number of people on multiple occasions and I know I've seen through other interviews that you've given in the past that you've talked a little bit about Martha Coolidge yeah Um, and tell me a little bit about if you would getting to getting to know her at the beginning was it the joy of sex that uh yeah how how did that kind of working relationship go and and what 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 did you see what did you think was kind of special about how she approached the medium? Um, she's a really nice lady, you know, and again, she's 
probably just a little bit older than me at that point. And she had done some documentaries and she did a, um, an independent movie before it was like really a thing, which was Valley Girl, with Nicolas Cage, like one of his first. And that was just a huge success. You know, they talked about the budget at 250,000 and it made, you know, six or seven or eight or nine million, whatever it was. And, uh, and it was after that that I met her. She got a, uh, hired to do a movie. It's called Joy of Sex, which turned out to be a pretty bad teen comedy. <laughs> it had a few problems. But she knew it, and I guess everyone knew it. And uh, I actually, I didn't know it at the time. It was my first job, and I thought it was just the, the greatest thing ever. It was just, I thought it was sure to be a, a success. And uh, anyway, so, yeah, we just got along well, you know. And, I, you know, she, she appreciated my commitment and, you know, the, the, the effort that I brought to, uh, to, and- to the proceedings. So, so you started with that, and then she brought you on to uh, read for Real Genius, right? Right. So, right. so you you read for multiple parts other than Kent. What other parts did you read for for that? You know, I heard you interviewing Dean Devlin. Yeah. Right. Who was in that movie, and also the you know writer producer, and uh, he he talked about how he had read for a role. And to, I guess I probably read for the role of Chris Knight, the, the one that um, Val Kilmer did. That's I mean, they often do that when they're casting something. You know, they'll start at the top and look at you for that role and then maybe find another one for you. So I think that's about, yeah, I may, I may have read for that. I don't even remember because the, the role of Kent, when it, when it came my way, I sort of I latched on to it, you know. And uh, I'm, I'm curious, like, um, what is it about the movie for you that's so important? So, okay. There are only a handful of films for me that I can depend on that no matter what awful day, what awful mood I've had that I right. can watch and will kind of bring me out of it. And specifically that movie connected with me because it had kind of a light quality to it first of all it didn't take itself too seriously it tried to be fun it seemed like it tried to be fun but not but not to the point of of ridiculousness it's not the best way to put it because it's not entirely accurate but it i know what you're saying though it brought joy and that was kind of the way that it seemed to approach even even in the the plot structure the way that it was put the way that it was put together most of the people that were in positions of being antagonists were not flat. They right. had they had depth to them, and you could relate and empathize. And right. especially like with your character, that yeah. that yeah. that really kind of that really was one of the first characters in film that I saw. It's like, well, he's not a bad guy. He's just. <laughs> He's just in in a bad situation and not dealing with it well. He wants he wants to be appreciated and to be loved. It looked like he maybe didn't have a father figure. Then he kind of latched on to Jerry. And it's like that's that's the person I'm going to seek approval from. Everything that I can. Yeah. It's like oh, that's that for me. It's like wow. And and you almost have that redeeming moment at the end of the film. Yeah. And it's yeah. just kind of. That that couple that with some classic '80s rock, Tears for Fears at the end, and it's like yeah, okay, right. done. That was Martha Coolidge. She she had a good ear for music. Yeah. Um. So how old were you when that movie came out? Well, let's see. That one. Let's see, was that eighty five? Eighty five, I think. Yeah. 80, yeah. So I would have been nine. Nine. Yeah. And so you probably probably watched a lot on cable when you were. Like in junior, those elementary, junior high years, yeah, definitely so. so. Yeah, that that was that that stretch of time when people would come home from the kids would come home from school and the movie on HBO or Showtime was on a loop. Yeah, you'd wind up watching it. Yeah, yeah, cable classic, right? That's what they call them. Yeah. But to answer your question about or or to to speak to that part of the movie. I mean, the movie really had a nice heart to it. You know, it, it, there was something gentle about it. And I think that's one of the things that Martha Coolidge brought to it. But there was also a writer 
who came on at the end, his name was P.J. Torokve, and I believe he was Canadian. But that movie started, it was written by Pat Proft and Neil Israel, the guys who did Police Academy, Bachelor Party, and all right. these big raunchy kind of movies, mm -hmm. where they didn't have the quality that you're talking about. No. And so I think what happened was it's the movie the script got bounced around a little bit, didn't really find its spot because you know, it's a school like MIT or Caltech with all these brainy kids. And you can't you can't make those kids into like a wacky, wonderful, you know, animal house group. They've got to be, you know, geeky and nerdy and weird and offbeat in their own way. And so this guy PJ Tarofe came in and I think he really humanized the script and he he made the character Kent a little, you know, softer and not just a straight out preppy. And when I got to it and read it, I, I realized, oh, he's not he's not a preppy. He's a he's a wannabe preppy, which is kind of sad, you know. There's a yeah. to him. So by you know, a combination of Coolidge and um and Taroka, I think they they really humanized the script in a nice way. Well, make it as accessible to the young kids, you know, like you. Right. That age. Well, I, at that point, I have to say, I was watching some stuff that I probably should not have been. But <laughs> <laughs> don't we all do that to a certain extent? Yeah. Um, but I mean, it, and it, it kind of like what you're talking about, that even the other things that I watched, like a great example, John Grease, uh, who is also in the film. Good buddy of mine, too. We uh, continue to work together. I love I love his I love his takes that he he does on things and uh, he also had another of of the eighties films that I kind of uh, attached onto not to the same level but the sequel to Fright Night that he was in you know fun but you know yeah. that that series is it's for what it was the 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 type of structure that it had it was kind of one of those things you watched it but. Eh. It, it was it was not something that would necessarily last with you, not not have that same kind right. of impact. And but still good, but still good. And it's, yeah. But that you get, uh, I kind of put real genius into the same kind of category as like, a, uh, for me, almost like a Princess Bride, or or something wow. of that that That's I can. Great. Yeah, I it's it's yeah. just a joy to to see it. And I mean, the cast on that film is just. I sometimes I feel like people don't realize how good it really was i mean wow that's nice of you to say it was i mean i i still have friends from that cast you know like may rink michelle may rink she was oh yeah the yeah we were good buddies i had a like huge crush on her me. yeah that was and uh john grise and on and on yeah that 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 is what Okay, so now I got to ask this. Okay, this is kind of going off on a, on a tangent a little bit, but okay. Good. End of the film. That that scene that nobody can forget once you see it with with all of the popcorn. There's in in movies you got to have multiple takes. How many takes in popcorn <laughs> did you have to do for that end shot? Um, it wasn't that bad. I think you know the the the, the amazing. The incredible thing about that scene is, as I recall, they built a house way outside of Los Angeles in a in a, a development. It was built on hydraulics, so the, the the roof could pop open, and and then they also popped like they set a a a, a world record for amount of popcorn popped. <laughs> it made that what's that book? What the Guinness. About? Yeah, it, it made the Guinness Book of World Records, I think. But then it turned out that that much popcorn is a fire hazard. So they had to spray it with an anti, you know, flammable, some kind of powder or something. And so you couldn't actually eat any of the popcorn, but it was popcorn. They filled up the house. And so I think we spent about half a day or a day, you know, at that house doing that thing. And, uh, yeah, I tumble out of the house as I recall. The whole the front door spills open, and, right. and a whole avalanche of popcorn comes out. And there was one piece that I pop in my mouth. Yeah, no, that was earlier. Is it earlier scene? Yeah, it's like the whole popcorn. But I had to be very careful to get the right kernel because it was not coated with this 
you know, toxic mess. Oh no, that's that's awful. <laughs> uh, so detailed, right? Well, no, it's, it, it's no, it's good stuff because I, I I just can't imagine though being so. You know, I've never been that big of a popcorn fan, but the smell. You I mean that's the smell of movies, and to yeah, just right. be su- surrounded by that smell, it's like yeah. I can't eat any of this. <laughs> that, that would be a little rough for me. <laughs> I remember that day too. I had a broken hand. I broke my hand, my wrist the day before. Oh. I didn't even tell Martha Coolidge because I had been playing uh, playing basketball and I shouldn't have. I was in this like league, and uh, something happened during the game, and I broke my my right hand, and I had to like keep it in a brace. But when she wasn't looking, I'd take the brace off. <laughs> And so I, I was a real trooper. I really gutted it out with a broken hand and the popcorn and all that. That's awesome. <laughs> um, okay, so one other thing I kind of wanted to know. You were talking about Dean Devlin a minute ago, and he was mentioning how he kind of, you know, did a lot of riffing and tried to bring in some improv stuff right. into it. Yeah, a lot of his, you know, a lot of the lines were, or a lot, I should say a lot of the scenes were shared scenes between yeah. a lot of people. So right. was there was there anything, whether it was something that he said or whether it was something else like, man, I really wish it would have made into the movie that just kind of cracked you up or something? Oh, God. I can't, I, you know, to be honest, I can't quite remember moments like that. I remember laughing a lot, you know, uh, in between takes. A good friend of mine was in a lot of scenes with me, the Tommy Swerdlow. Mm-hmm. I forget his character's name, but... Um, He's, he's turned into a very successful writer, you know. He's written quite a few good screenplays. Like, um, so yeah, I mean, they're just laughs. It was it was a good feeling, you know. We, it, it was. Um, I don't know. I, I kind of really enjoyed all that brown nosing activity that I did, you know. And so <laughs> I, I continue it off stage. I you know suck up to at William Atherton in ways and try to sit by him and, and, you know, go get him another little carton of milk if he asked for it. You know, I, I kind of enjoyed being an insufferable kind of guy. And, and you know, it, it, it kept the energy up for the whole, for the whole movie. I have a, I have a feeling that if I were in your position, I would have a hard time keeping a straight face just because he's got that gaze that he can give that overly serious that I'm I'm going to stare right through you kind of look that you know he'd put in so many uh, parts over the years. But uh, yeah. he, did he was on Ghostbusters, right? Right. Yeah. Sense. He yeah. He, had, he had a great part there. He uh, he had um, uh, he was on um, my brain turned off for a minute. He was. He was with Bruce Willis in Die Hard. Uh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. He, Same high-strung, wound-up guy. Right. God damn it! <laughs> Speaking of uh, improv lines, did you know that when they're doing uh, uh, Ghostbusters, there's a scene where they're in the office, the Ghostbusters, and Atherton is is going on. These guys, I'm going to shut this place down, and you'll never, you know, be able to. Yeah. And uh, I think it's Aykroyd who says, he calls him Dickless. He says, you know, we wouldn't be in this situation if Dickless here hadn't made this, you know. <laughs> and apparently the, that, that word Dickless was not in the script. Oh. And it really flipped out Atherton. Like, nobody loves to be called Dickless, but <laughs> to have it dropped on you in the middle of a scene, uh, and they kept it. Yeah. But I think he grew to like it. He grew to appreciate the line. Well, that would that would kind of uh, uh, pull out a more genuine response without yeah, intending right. to. <laughs> okay, so so real genius. Before I before I just dominate this all with just real genius no, no, questions. No. Um, I mean, it's so you you had you had this string in in the eighties where you had quite a few projects that you worked on, but then you eventually stepped away from right. acting what what kind of caused you to just feel like you needed to leave um uh, well it's you know it's not just one thing it's a number of things um but in terms of the living in los angeles i was getting a little bit tired of that because i wasn't you know uh i 
gotten there right there 84 or whatever 83 and um and i felt like the work that i was getting was all it started feeling all all the same yeah i mean you know like you were saying uh the character of kent i when i when i set out to be an actor and i got my first job in hollywood i didn't realize that it was right at that time post uh animal house where the the adversaries were often the the preppies and the right. preppies. and i didn't really see myself as being that guy but physically i you know i fit the bill pretty well and i you know i'm just happy to get whatever work i could and so i'd step into whatever role and play the fool you know when asked um so but but after a while like you know i played quite a few roles like that with just the angry preppy the the the, the malevolent uh the malevolent wasp yeah i think that's an expression that christopher walken used once the malevolent wasp <laughs> though though likely with but, a very thick accent <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> but the younger version, you know, at that time, I was I was playing the college kids and the, like that. Just and, needed a fresh change, a change of environment. But you went into you know you did quite a few things that you know kind of would give I don't know how to phrase this, but would kind of give um, give back to you in a different way. I mean, I saw you like you coached basketball, right? Right. And it's just kind of, it, it's, it's, it seems like it would be kind of almost a refreshing step away in, in some respects to just kind of have a more direct uh, feeling of impact and a, and a more immediate uh, right. uh, feeling on that. Um, and that kind of seems to be what, I mean, you, you went into construction for right. the 911. Is that, how did how did you how did you I, I don't even know how to ask this what kind of drove you into okay i this is what i have to do this is my at least for now this is my purpose to to make a difference right well i was li i lived in new york i and still do in the same apartment and so on september 11 september 11 2001 um you know the one of those planes flew right over my apartment building and um long story short i just i i got i went to get my wife and son who was three and a half at the time school and frame home and i said we need to leave the city right away but if we don't i'm going to go down and help and my wife said um I'm, i can't leave the city because my sister lives she was down in the village i have to know she's all right and so i I got on my clunky old bike with a baby seat in the back and I drove down to the um, perimeter of Ground Zero at that time, which was up in Tribeca. It was on, well, I forget the cross street now. And I was with a group of people, just other citizens, men and women, and wanting to get in there and figuring that they need a, you know, a bucket brigade or a rubble brigade to move stuff. But uh, there was a cop who turned us away and said, it's not happening. You know, nobody's coming in. This is the crime. And then a few days later, I was talking to a friend, uh, this guy Rooney. And uh, I told him about my experience and said, I can get you a job down there. And I'm like, Rooney, you write these little farce plays and romantic comedy. How are you going to get me a job in construction? And he says, no, no, I, got, I know a guy, Bobby, who owns a demolition company over in Bayonne, New Jersey. I'm like, how do you know a guy named Bobby? <laughs> Bayonne. It's like all Sopranos type stuff, right? Pre-Sopranos. And so he's it long story. A couple of days later I was working because he did know this guy, Bobby. And uh I got a job. I joined a union, the local 79, and you know, had to have all my credentials and papers, and we were putting in 12 hours a day, seven days a week, 44 hours of overtime a week man you know for like two or three months and then it tapered off a little bit to 10 hours a day so it was it was a very intense working thing and, and to answer your question i did it just because i wanted to do something to help out i thought this is a moment you know are you going to do it you know put up or shut up and so the opportunity came and then and i took it and i did it and it would seem like with something like that i mean with 
I mean, it's a terrible circumstance, and I know it's been talked about multiple times, but the kind of connections that you could make to the other people that were all trying to kind of restore uh, a sense of hope and a sense of, of uh, order to everything that was going yeah. on, it would seem like that would not only last with you just personally, but some of those connections, it would it would just kind of go on for the rest of yeah. your life. It's so true. I mean, I think we were all, so many people felt, um, you know, ready to do something at that moment and ready to pitch in, to help out, to work together. And there was a spirit. I mean, I'll, there, there, I take away so many moments, but there were people lined up on the West Side Highway, you know, outside of proper ground zero, who were cheering trucks as they came in and out, you know, hauling the debris out. And that's what they did. But to me, it was moving to hear these cheers going up. Like people, you know, it's the same thing that's been going on since with the pandemic. You know, people come out at 7 p.m. and, you know, bang their pots and whistle and clap and for, for the workers. And it's that same kind of spirit. And to be part of it, and on the receiving end a little bit, too. Because, you know, I'd get in the subway at 7 a.m. I was working the night shift from 7 p.m. to 7 a.m. And I'd get on the subway to go uptown. You know, I had dust on me and, you know, just working clothes and a hard hat under my arm. And people would look at me and, and you know, nod. And it meant a lot to me. I felt like, you know, I mean, I was just backing up trucks, but it was part of some, it was part of a, a group, an effort that was bigger than me and it felt good, you know. Why do you, why do you think it is? I mean, this is kind of a little outside the, the normal scope of the question, but it, when I was looking at that, and it first just made me think about talking about the, the correlation between that and some of the difficulties we're doing today. Why does it take, it seems like, something massively bad happening to get people to recognize the humanity in each other and to, to be part of the same family? Just remember, we're all part of the same family. Yeah. I don't have an answer to that. I think yeah. human nature is... I'm, I'm probably a little more pessimistic about it now than I have ever been in my life because, you know, all the, the situation that we're going through right now, and I think, you know, the, the worst part of human nature is sort of dictating how we're handling it. Yeah. You know, this politicized, self-interested, and on and on. So it's, I don't get it, but I, 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 I mean, I'm, it's good to help. It's good to care about people. You know, right. it's good to have some compassion. And I, I think we sometimes lose that. Well, I hope. I hope we can kind of keep that in mind. I always, always, yeah. I, I tended to be. I still, I have to fight my pessimism, and I, I, I think kind of brings back to what we were talking about with real genius with characters in these shows. Yeah, people are redeemable. Right. And when I when I think about that. I look at so well that means unless it's the most deplorable individual they can be brought back we just have to find the way to reach them and it's uh, you know the the answer to how to do that's beyond me but it's a huge philosophical question i think can i mean there are certain individuals that you have to wonder like can that person be brought back but i think it's a society we have to um agree that we, it's, it's, it's our, we have to try. We can't just put people to death because exactly. I, mean, I, sh I don't mean to bring up the death penalty, but I mean, um, yeah, to believe that people are redeemed. Right. You know, it is, uh, you know, you take some criminal who is some serial, horrible serial killer who seems to be beyond redemption and, um, you know, they die in prison. I don't really get upset about it, but I don't think that it's our right to, you know, put them to death. Expedite the process, right? Yeah. So I think it is important that we just proceed with that idea that people are redeemable. Yeah. On the subject of redemption and to bring us into a slightly more uh, positive side, because I didn't mean to take it down this kind of darker <laughs> 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 the subject matter but uh redemption 
Uh, you were uh, doing voice work for Red Dead Redemption 2. I had a friend of mine oh, that was yeah. super geeked about that. And you know, I was trying to tell him, I was like, I'm going to talk to Robert Prescott. And, you know, he's it's like, I don't recognize him. I said, he's been in a bunch of stuff. He's, he's great. It's like, and he started, looks like, oh, Red Dead Redemption. I love that game. How did you get involved with that project? Oh, I, I just got an audition. I think I, you know, I, I, I haven't done a whole lot of voiceover work and, um, and I, I just got an audition and I went in and I, I, they did that business where you wear the suit with the little, the mocap, what's it called? The mocap. Yeah. Yeah. So I did some of that. It was all just kind of interesting to me, uh, to see how the, you know, just, just be on the learning curve of how they make one of these things. And as far as the game itself, <clears throat> I've never played it. Uh-huh. That was going to be I my next question. But I hear it's good, and the the quality of the you know the production values are through the roof with that one. I guess it has a, a huge fan base. I mean, you may yeah. not have played this one. Are you a video game person at all? Not at all. No. Not at all. Yeah, that's kind of that is a no judgment. But no, no, it's, it's a time sucker. Uh, I, I love video yeah. games, but I have a hard time playing them because the good ones take yeah. several hundred hours to really explore. Right. Who has that right. kind of time? <laughs> <laughs> well, we all do now, right? Right. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, I, I kind of figured you might not be the the video game type, but one thing that I always thought, and I've I've thought this for years now, is I had. We're comic book people. We tend to talk a lot about uh, comic-related properties uh, that right. have been converted into television shows and movies and things like that. Right. Um, have you ever been kind of a comic book fan? Well, yeah. When I was a kid, we used to, you know, spend our part of our allowance on Archie Archie comics. Nice. I like I like less the superhero. I liked um, GI Joe when I was a kid. Nice. I like the G.I. Joe comics. And also they do they would do some Tarzan comics and more of like the classic kind of you know adventure co- comics, but the, the science fiction and superhero ones not less so for me. Although, you know, I was a kid, I read whatever I could get my hands on. Oh know? yeah, absolutely. But I wasn't I wasn't like a, a full fledged my dad when he was a kid, he had a Comics were even bigger then. You know, he was born in 27, grew up in the 30s. And he had a deal with uh, at his school that he'd trade uh, one of his comics for any two. Hmm. That's a good deal for him. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so if he had kept that, that collection of comics, it probably would have been worth a billion bucks. But um, he was a big comic guy, my dad, when he was a kid. Well, comics have changed significantly, especially in the yeah. last uh, decade yeah, or two. Graphic novels and all this stuff. Right. And Movies graphics. like um, Road to Perdition, based on a comic uh, that a lot of people just didn't know. Uh, but you can get some really interesting story out of this that you wouldn't normally do. But the thing that I've been thinking about for the last 10 years, um, I, I always like, you know, if, if I were to put Robert Prescott into a comic book movie, who who would he be? Have you ever thought about who you would ever want to play in a comic book movie? Uh, I never have, but now that you ask me, um, God, I mean, I think of comics now as, as Batman and all the Avengers and all these things. So I don't know where I fit into that crowd. To tell you the truth, probably the guy in charge who's always getting frustrated. <laughs> That's always good. Like. like yeah, the the chief back at the uh, you know the headquarters, that guy, you know, I, I you guys got to play by the rules. <laughs> <laughs> you can't be flying off, and we're gonna we're gonna approach us the right way. That guy, that'd be good. That's it's like a that's like a Henry Gyrich for the Avengers, but. Yeah. I thought I had a perfect one for you and just you should definitely float this on to somebody see if you can manage to get it because it's the perfect timing for it and it, I, it's got to become available especially considering what's going on. I always thought that you would be a perfect Dr. Kurt Connors for Spider-Man. Now, which one is he? He's the lizard. So, he's the lizard. He's the lizard. So, um basically it's uh uh, uh a teacher of Peter Parker's in college. 
that oh. lost his arm and, and create a serum to try and regenerate it using lizard DNA. And it turns him into a giant ferocious lizard. So it'd be all CGI. Oh, he's ferocious too. Is yeah. It? Yeah, he's oh, he's okay. he's an I'm in. unwitting I'm... villain. He doesn't intend to be. He loses all control of himself when he oh. turns into it. So it's, it it would be kind of a it's like oh he has kind of like that sciencey side in that and he and I could see him being kind of the professor, the mentor, you know, right? You but know, evil, but vicious. unintentionally evil, right? Yeah, I like it. I like it. I'm in. Good stuff. <laughs> <laughs> you know, they're doing. Uh, they just signed uh, the current actor playing Spider Man to another three movie deal from what i understand they're doing they're going to do like the high school series of three like a college series of three well uh-huh. that's that's right where that would come into place like oh, I, somebody somebody's got to hear this and see this and say hey this is the guy that we should get to do kirk connors so who's the actor doing um spider-man now um the actor that's currently doing spider-man and i'm going to feel signed for three more he, I'm going to feel awful about this because uh, occasionally my brain just does not uh, <laughs> cooperate. But currently, Spider-Man is uh, Tom Holland. That's what it was. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. right. So it's he's he's my favorite so far. I mean, I, I I've liked most of the the work that they've done on the previous ones, and, and it's a, it's a shame that they keep resetting the universe. But you know, new generations, right. you got to reintroduce it. Right, uh, but uh, yeah, Tom Holland has just kind of hit it right on the head, and uh, just fantastic job he's done so far. Yeah, he's good. At but everything. so, everything. all right. So let's let's bring this back around. And I, now, now I've gotten away too much from from <laughs> from my my obsession with real genius, uh, and 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 your your part in it. We'll we'll finish up. We're, we're almost uh, to the point where most people start to get. Uh, start looking at the watch when they're when they're talking to me it's like you're asking too many questions it's a very yeah specific right right so but the thing is i gotta tell you i've, I've met other people that it, it didn't it's it started to happen so the movie came out in 85 maybe about 20 years later like 05 people would come up to me and they'd say i saw that movie 40 60 80 times and i'm like what why and, and, and it's so often it's, it was on a loop on the the cable TV and kids would come home, they flip on the TV and gain comfort and from watching this one movie or another, whatever it meant to them, you know, whichever movie it was. For them. Yeah, I, I'd I say it. I fall into that category. I've probably seen it that, that number of times pretty easily. Yeah. Um, but okay so i'll ask one last question to kind of wrap us up for for the whole thing leave us on on a fun note at least fun for me anyway uh (laughs) from 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 real genius is there um what is your absolute favorite scene from the movie and why um (laughs) i think i mean all right, so I was I was Kent, and one of the running jokes about me was I was always whacking off, um, among other things, and brown nosing and running off and telling on the teachers and just being an insufferable asshole one way or another. Um, but this was this is that guy P, P. J. Taroka. There's a scene where. Um, Val Kilmer says, what about that time I caught you naked with a bowl of jello? <laughs> and I said, it was hot and I was hungry. <laughs> <laughs> and then I said right away, and I remember this, like changing the subject. I said, it was hot and I was hungry. And anyway, you're not number one around here. The, the little kid over here beat your score by so and so and so and so. Yeah. And I remember looking at Val the way I the way I said I covered up. You know, like you stupid. I was hot and hungry, and then then attacked him with my little little point about you're gross. not so smart. There's this other guy so smart than you. And it cracked him up. It cracked him up, and it was one of those moments where I thought, that's good. You know, it's, it's fun when you actually get a real laugh out of somebody <laughs> it sets off another thing but i love that line it was hot naked with a bowl of jello that whole scene was great the idea of having an entire dorm hall floor covered with ice and 
and everybody right. skating around on it. Uh, yeah. That that, so uh, that that was my favorite scene, I think. Just just uh, mixing it up and being a snotty little shit with it. <laughs> <laughs> and also any any scene where I got to run to Athens and say, "Oh, I have some news about them." Yeah, and and interrupt the person with the with the record player. <laughs> That's the. I still see it's like, oh yeah, record players. I remember those. <laughs> but uh, well, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to talk to me. I I really appreciate it, and uh, it's been a, a a joyous thing to have a a, a perspective from somebody behind uh, some of the things that I've loved over the years. And uh, just thank you again. Well, I'm 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 glad that you enjoyed it so much. It's it it really makes me feel good about that that I was part of that and. Uh, and uh, thanks for asking me. I mean, I'm I'm lonely up here in Maine. I'm just uh, looking for a little conversation. You know? <laughs> can't go down to the general store anymore because you got to wear a face mask and you can't sit around the pot-bellied stove and talk about stuff. Yeah. Talk about the corn crop and the apple crop. <sighs> yeah, I can't wait till we get back to a little bit of normalcy. But on that note, don't forget, folks, if you're looking for that normalcy, visit us on social media. We're on at Real Pudding Guys on Twitter, at Pudding Guys on Instagram and Facebook. And of course, we are at Pudding Guys on Patreon, where for just $1 a month, you can help support us in our attempts to bring new people onto the show, to get new equipment to speak into, and to, in general, uh, make a profit. You know, it's a great thing to have. Thank you again, sir. Um, I can't. Thank you very much, Ken. All right, nice talking to you.